Amen. Heavenly Father, thanks for this morning. Um, we thank you that what we just sang is true. The battle does belong to you. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to live with a greater sense of your victory in this new year. Um, not that we expect everything to be easy, but that, we would, you would, that you would grow us in facing difficult circumstances, battles, with greater confidence in your word and in your provision. Lord, I pray uh, for anyone this morning who's here right now, and they're already in the midst of a battle. The, the year has started off hot. Um, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen their hearts this morning. Uh, I pray that you would minister to them by your spirit this morning and that you would help all of us to leave here today with a sense of your strength that comes from your word and your spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Good morning, guys. How's everybody doing? Happy New Year. Happy 2024. Uh, if you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Matthew chapter 4, the end of Matthew chapter 4, beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Jess had mentioned during the opening uh, Bible reading plan that you know many of us start doing one here at the beginning of the year. Uh, if you have, did not get one of these last week, out on the Connect table out front, there's a little bookmarker uh, that has our church-wide Bible reading plan on it. It's, it's a little bit random this year, but it's going to pretty much coincide with where we're at for the most part on Sunday mornings and what we'll be preaching from. It varies anywhere from just one to three chapters a week, okay? Um, we're kind of big proponents of not reading a whole lot of Scripture. I'll, that sounds bad on the surface. I mean, take in as much as you want, but reading so, some Scripture again and again and again. Um, there's also... There's also some verses on the back. We call this the little look journal questions, um, where you look to the Spirit, look for a verse, look for the points, look at, for God in the gospel, look at your heart, look at the world, and look to heaven. If, and if you just kind of go through those with every passage that you read uh, and do that, just as a starting point, just as a helpful little tool, it's not, it's not magic, um, but just as a little starting point for uh, getting into the Word and, and helping to pull some things out, um, I promise you that you're going to grow in this new year. Um, we grow as we get into his word and allow it to do its work in our lives. But this morning, we're going to be the end of Matthew chapter 4 and the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Let me jump in and read here, and we'll talk about it. This is, I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Well, this is about Jesus. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them immediately. They left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Going into chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray one more time. Father, thanks for today. As always, Lord, we, we truly do look to you. We don't want to do anything in our own strength, even read your word. And so we pray again that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would help us to see wonderful things from it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, the first month of this year here in January, we're doing just a, a four-week series um, on discipleship. It's a very creative series, just called Disciple. Um, next week, we're going to talk about how disciples pray. The week after that, we're going to talk about how disciples forgive. The last week, we're going to talk about how disciples go. But today, what we're talking about is how disciples learn, disciples learn. And this is probably the most logical place to start um, because the word disciple literally just means learner. Uh, the Greek word that you'll find in the New Testament again and again is the word mathetes, and it, it literally and simply just means learner. And so we are trying to learn the way of Christ. Um, we're trying to be shaped and formed by him in every single area. And so as we talk about discipleship, and before we really get into what a disciple does, we have to just talk about what a disciple is. And a disciple is just simply a learner. Now, one of the things that you may have heard me um, say often, yet perhaps maybe I don't know exactly what I'm talking about because I don't always take the time to explain exactly what I mean by it, um, is that the way that we think about learning in our Western culture is much, much different than the way the Bible talks about learning. And so to talk about being a disciple, to talk about being a learner, we have to get on the same page with the way the Bible is talking about it. Generally speaking, when we talk about learning in our Western culture, we are simply talking about information transfer, okay? Um, we, we think about a classroom, we think about a lecture, we think about taking notes, we think about being able to remember that information from those notes, from that lecture, and being able to give the correct answers on a test that will have questions that correspond to that information that we were given during that lecture. You follow me? It's, uh, it's maybe a little bit cynical, but on some level, we're quite happy with just being able to regurgitate information. And correct answers, but that is absolutely not the way the Bible speaks about learning, or more specifically about discipleship, about learning as a disciple. Now, to be sure, knowing the information is absolutely a necessity. It is a part of the process, but if we're only happy with information transfer, then we're never going to actually learn the way of Jesus and what it means to be a disciple. Probably the closest thing that we have in our culture that mirrors the idea of discipleship is that of an apprentice of some sort sitting under the tutelage of some sort of master craftsman or artisan. Uh, the apprentice doesn't just want to be able to know or to describe the information, the routines, the processes 
of the master craftsman. He wants to take that information and he wants to be able to actually create a fine piece of furniture or jewelry or of art or whatever it might be that adds some sort of usefulness and beauty to the world. To say it another way, the apprentice doesn't just want there to be, he, the, the apprentice doesn't want there to be any incongruence between his head and his hands. He wants to be a doer of, of the craft. Um, and in the same way, the main thing that I, that I want to get across this morning as we kind of set up not just this sermon but kind of this entire series and where we're, what we're going to be talking about all this month is that discipleship, Christian discipleship, is not just the transfer of information and the regurgitation of correct answers, but rather it is the process by which Jesus makes us useful for his service by making us like him. It is the process by which Jesus makes us useful for his service by making us like him. Now, one of the ways that he does this is by creating an environment that is conducive or productive, helpful in learning, okay? How many of you guys remember, can remember at all what some of your elementary school classrooms looked like? Anybody? As I was thinking about this this past week, I mean, I'm 42, I mean, that was back in the day, that I was in elementary school, but I can still remember my first grade classroom, Mrs. Tartier. We were so naughty, we used to call her Mrs. Tartar Sauce. Um, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but uh, just a confession, I guess. I had to get that off my chest after all these years. Um, but I can still remember certain things in her classroom, the way she, she had them. You know, the all the letters of the alphabet with like a corresponding picture. A is for apple, B is for bus. Um, I don't remember what C was, but, uh, but you, you had stuff like that. You know, I remember other classrooms where you would have historical figures, big, like, cutouts of these historical figures on the wall. George Washington and Andrew Jackson and, and different president, uh, presidents, Benjamin Franklin and such. Um, remember another classroom had, you know, a big chart of the multiplication table on the wall. These, not, why did they have all these things? Because they were creating an environment that was conducive for learning, okay? And it was in that environment that we were taught our ABCs and our one, two, threes, or have you ever heard of the three R's? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, but it was in that environment that we, were, that we were taught these things. Now, here's the point in what I want to look at this morning and where this passage is helpful. Uh, and what I want to pull from it, is that Jesus also wants to create an environment in which it is helpful for us to learn as his people. But his classroom is not surrounded with the alphabet, multiplication tables, or historical figures. Um, his classroom is surrounded by some things that I think we think shouldn't be there. Some things that we think aren't helpful to the learning process but what I want to try to argue for this morning is that they are absolutely essential for the learning process. Is because Jesus is always working in our lives uh, to, make us, to make us more like him. And so what I want to look at this morning from the passage I read earlier are three characteristics of Christ's classroom. You with me? Three characteristics of Christ's Classroom. Here's the first characteristic of Christ's classroom in which he is shaping us into, him is, into his image and making us useful for his service. The first characteristic of Christ's classroom is that we're, we need to get familiar with the unfamiliar. 
He's going to have us in situations that seem very unfamiliar to us, where we cannot depend on that which we would naturally lean on and naturally be accustomed to. Um, a fairly well-known passage here, I'm sure most of us are, are, are familiar with it, and for good reason, but Jesus is walking along the sea, and this is just kind of the Cliff Notes version, there was more going on, and I don't have time to go into all this, but these disciples had met Jesus before, um, and there was some more going on, but Matthew just kind of gives us the short version here, because this is all Matthew really wants us to get about the encounters, that Jesus is walking along the sea, and he goes to these men whom he had met before and who had had some interaction with him, and he just simply says to them, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. This is the command. This is the primary command of discipleship, and praise the Lord that he keeps it, keeps it simple for us, amen? And I'm telling you guys, the, the battle, the fight in Christian discipleship, in being a learner, of understanding the way of Christ is just simply to keep our hearts, minds, wills focused on this one single command. Then in the midst of everything else that's going to come and all the confusion and chaos and difficulty and things that we don't understand, we've got to remember this. We have one job, and it is to follow him. It is to follow him. It is to follow him. And I say that the, the, the characteristic that marks his classroom is the unfamiliar because what he calls us to follow him into is the unknown. Notice he calls them away from what they knew. He calls them away from the boats. He calls them away from the nets. He calls them away from their craft. For, for, for John and Andrew, he calls them away from their father Zebedee. Away from different relationships. And again, whatever Christ is calling us into, it's probably going to look different for each and every, every single one of us. But know this, that one of the things that's absolutely going to be a characteristic or a marker of his classroom is he's going to call you into some things that are unfamiliar. And the only way we're going to, we, can, we press into that is by following him. Just very quickly, let me run through some different places in the book of Matthew where he gives this command because this is not an isolated incident. Um, and I really need us to get this because this isn't just a command for a few. This is a command for everybody who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Later on here, just a few chapters, Matthew chapter 8 says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lie his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. In Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man, Matthew, who is writing this gospel, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and he followed him. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever ever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Matthew chapter 16, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If any of you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul to the rich young ruler? In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell all that you possess and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. 
But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. One of the very last words that Jesus ever gives to his disciples at the very end of the Gospel of John, this is how the Gospel of John ends, in John chapter 21, (coughs) excuse me, Jesus had just told Peter how he's going to die someday, and Peter's a little bit taken back by this, um, as, as I'm sure most of us would be. And then he looks at Peter and he says, follow me. But Peter, it says he turns and he saw one of the disciples whom Jesus loved following him, the one who had leaned back against him during the Last Supper. And he said, well, well Lord, um, who is it that's going to betray you? And, 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 Peter, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ, or as the ESV translates it, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, one of the things that I'm kind of picking a fight with this morning, not just with this sermon, but with this whole series this month, is that I want to pick a fight with the way that we compartmentalize our Christian lives, if that makes sense. We, we think that the Christian life just happens here on Sunday mornings. We think that it may just happen in a men or women's Bible study. We think that discipleship just happens maybe when we have the word open or when we're in prayer, or when we're around Christian brothers and sisters, and to be sure those are precious things and discipleship is happening them then. But guys, here's what I want you to get, is that discipleship is not just one thing. It is everything. It is everything. And the call to follow Jesus means that there is no longer, there can be no longer, a divide between the sacred and the secular. Every single area of your life is to be brought under the lordship of Christ. And what he wants to do in this process of discipleship is he's going to call us into situations that are, familiar, that are unfamiliar, and in that place, that's where he wants to teach us his word. See, he doesn't just want to, if he, was, if he was content with just information transfer and not transformed lives, then yeah, a nice sterile classroom would be enough. But what he wants to do is call us into the unknown, and there he wants to speak his word to us because it's all that we've got. He wants to make us dependent upon him. And I'm convinced that one of the greatest hindrances to our transformation and becoming like Jesus Christ is because we live compartmentalized Christian lives where he gets part of us but not the whole of us and where we only see him working in certain areas as if that's the only place he could work and not in areas uh, that are unfamiliar. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then here's the point. He is discipling you. Do you understand that? If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he is discipling you. In every circumstance. There's no recess. There's no Christmas break. There's no summer break. In every relationship, in every trial or difficulty, Jesus is discipling you. You never leave the classroom. Are you with me? You never, ever, ever, ever leave the classroom. This is all kind of summed up in this, in this call to follow him. Um, it's very possible for us to short circuit uh, what Jesus is trying to teach us by thinking um, that we're in the wrong classroom just because things seem unfamiliar to us. 
and we feel ill-equipped, but the whole point of calling us away from what we know and call, is to make us dependent upon him and upon his word. And again here, notice, we follow a person, but we trust him with the process. We follow a person, but we trust him with the process. Notice here, and, and, and this, is, this is key for discipleship, and when I talk about him bringing us his word in these settings that are unfamiliar and where maybe we feel uncomfortable and unsafe. Um, his, his, his word always works like this. There's always a command, but the command is always linked to a promise. When you read your Bible, look for the commands, look for the promises, and look for how they work together. The command, what is it? Follow me, follow me, follow me. Very simple. What's the promise? I will make you. The command is follow him. That's our job. We follow the person, but the process is his to handle that he's going to make us into something that we are not, namely fishers of, fishers of men. And of course, that was a little phrase that was uh, very contextual to these men who were fishermen. But it has great application for, for all of our lives that he's making us, that he's making us into something that we were not. He's making us into something um, that are some, or to, to people that are useful uh, for his service. And can I just tell you that if you want to short-circuit your transformation and your growth, the change that you desire to see in your life in 2024, here's what you need to do. Here's how to short-circuit it, how to really screw it up, is you begin to handle the process and take your eyes off of the person. You leave the process to him. Everything that comes into your life, good, bad, or ugly, is by his sovereign choice. Absolutely, we will not like all of it. Absolutely, it will seem unfamiliar and uncomfortable, and we will feel way out of our depth. He's got you exactly where he wants you. He's got you exactly where he wants you. Now, notice, too, the way in which they follow. Uh, it, it's mentioned twice, once in verse 20, also in verse 22. It says, immediately. Everybody say, immediately. Immediately. Now, this is one of the few times in all four of the Gospels that the disciples actually get it right. If you read the Gospels, quite honestly, the disciples most of the time are an example of what not to do. They really are. And it's, it's very helpful for us because we make, the, we make the same mistakes. But this is one place where they get it right in that their obedience, their following of him was immediate. It was immediate. Most of us believe the lie that when Jesus begins to press on our hearts by his spirit, by his word, by the mingling of those two things, to either have a hard conversation or to apologize to somebody or to confront somebody about something in their life that you don't think is quite right or to go share the gospel with somebody that maybe makes us a little bit nervous or to begin to confess some of our sin. Most of us, when Jesus begins to ask us to follow him in those specific ways, here's what we do. We don't do it immediately. We go, oh, that's, yeah. See what you're saying, Lord. Let me, let me think about that. Or the real cleaned up Christian ways, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll pray about that. I'll pray about that. Dear friends, that's not discipleship. Discipleship and following Jesus, it's about doing it Immediately. And see, we, we think that so much our, of our growth will happen if we, like, like I, I mean, t listen, I, I think all of us have been here. If not, then I'm just, I guess it's just me, okay? But I cannot tell you how many times I've been in the Word of God, and God has, begin, has begun to convict me about something, and instead of picking up the phone or going and doing whatever it is that I know that I need to do, I just go, oh yeah, that's, 
that's good, Lord. Uh, let me look up this word in the Greek, you know. Or let me outline the, 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 this passage. We think it's just about more information. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for obedience. This is not legalism, okay? We are saved by grace and by grace alone. The only proper response of faith, remember last week we talked how the book of Romans ended? The obedience of faith, that faith is our obedience and that faith fuels obedience. Remember when we said that? It's the same idea here. This is what discipleship looks like. It looks like immediate obedience. If you want to grow in this new year, stop being sluggish and slothful in regards to the things that you know that Jesus is calling you to do. That's how you change. That's how you grow. It's not just by more information. It's not just by taking in more Bible. It's about being obedient to the Bible and trusting in his word. (coughs) Now, that's kind of the the big kind of overarching uh, heading of probably the primary, I guess the primary characteristic of Christ's classroom is that he's going to call us to the unfamiliar and the uncomfortable. The next two kind of fall underneath that heading, but, but are slightly nuanced. The second thing that marks Christ's classroom is that we will find ourselves surrounded by the brokenness of the world. We will find ourselves surrounded by the brokenness of the world. And just like when things are unfamiliar, he wants to teach us to be dependent upon his word. When we find ourselves surrounded by the brokenness of the world, what he's trying to teach us is the power of his word. The power of his word. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, and he went through Galilee. So he calls them, boom, immediately they follow him. And he goes through Galilee teaching in their synagogue. So so he's teaching. He's bringing his word to bear on these situations. And he's teaching and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him. And now this is quite the list. This is quite the list, okay? Let's just read it slowly. They brought to him the sick, the afflicted, with various diseases, those who had pains, oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed him. So, and he healed them. So he said, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. The word there for men is, is the Greek word um, anthropoi. It's, it's where we get the term anthropology. Um, probably a more literal translation would be, I will make you fishers of humanity. Okay, that's what he's saying. So he says, I'm going to make you fishers of humanity. Guess where he takes them? To humanity. To a broken humanity that is sin sick. Why, just theologically and thinking biblically, why do all of these things exist ultimately? I'm not talking about sin in the specific person's life, but they, but they exist because of the brokenness of Genesis chapter 3 that Jess read about this morning in the opening. That that's where the fall happened. That's where all this stuff came from. And Jesus takes them, and he takes them to a front row seat to the brokenness of humanity. Dear friend, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, and if you want to be shaped by him, if you want to learn from him, get ready for your heart to at times be absolutely broken into a thousand pieces. He will show you the brokenness and the darkness of humanity, and it's right there that he wants to get our attention. This is why I um, 
try not to rant too much here, not get on too much of a soapbox, and yet I know that what I'm about to say, I believe it very, I believe that what I'm about to say is very right, and yet I know there's a little part of it that's wrong, so give me some grace. But I, I want to use the word hate. I know hate's a strong word. They say don't use hate because hate's a strong word. But I'm very close to hate our Christian education system. I'm not against Bible colleges. I'm not against seminaries, per se. I'm not against what is, what is taught there, and I have benefited from them. So all that caveat being said. I'm a massive believer that our theology needs to be learned within the context of the local church, where it is being learned in the midst of people that are broken, that are imperfect, and that have got a lot of issues. And that we would learn the truth that Jesus is trying to teach us. Again, allow his word to come to bear on us in the midst of this context, and in the context not only of the local church, but of actually doing mission. Doing mission. Another thing that I maybe don't hate, but almost hate, is I hate social media. And I hate it for this reason specifically. Again, if you're like, you know, posting pictures of yourself and all that stuff, it's cool to see everybody and, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about that. But here's what I hate about it in in the Christian context. Is you have guys on YouTube, like they have entire channels devoted to this. It drives me bonkers. I want to pull my hair out. Where they, they take a person's sermon and then they just critique it. And then another person critiques it but from a different angle. And then another person does a YouTube video on critiquing the person that critiqued the first guy's sermon. And, and, they, and we actually call it, here, here's the, the term for it. And maybe you haven't, maybe you're not familiar with any of this stuff, but it's a thing and it drives me bonkers, so I'm getting it off my chest this morning. But they'll call it discernment ministry. Or they use this fancy term named called polemics. Um, That's this idea of, yeah, like being able to discern. Who cares? Who cares? Now, I'm not saying there's not a need for discernment, but what I'm saying is, is that in Jesus trying to make us fishers of men, he takes us and he gives us his word for the purpose of reaching a lost and dying world. Are you with me? And to just learn his word for our purposes week after week, maybe not just on Sunday mornings, but on YouTube, and as we're driving around and we're listening to Moody Radio or we're listening to our favorite podcasts, and again, are those things wrong in and of themselves? Absolutely not. But dear friends, there is a world that needs the gospel. And this is where Jesus leads them. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of humanity. Here comes a sea of broken humanity. I, I do, don't think it's a stretch. In fact, this was kind of my, um, one of the things I was wrestling with was, you know, how to word, you know, this kind of point that I'm making is that we'll find ourselves surrounded by the brokenness of the world. Another way I, w- I was going to word it was just that one of the characteristics of Christ's Christ classroom is that it's marked by being overwhelmed. <laughs> I think that's a lot of what you see here. I think this is what the disciples were feeling. Again, there's a very real sense, and I don't have time to get into all this, but just in the structure of Matthew's gospel, that in placing this little story of him calling the disciples to follow him, Matthew really is kind of locking us in to read the rest of the story from the perspective of the disciples as if we're one of them following Jesus, because we are. 
And it's like he wants to bring us along. And again, the first place he takes us is to the brokenness of humanity and some very overwhelming situations. Um, when Hannah and I lived in, in Canton, and you guys know I've, I've shared about that from time to time, it, it was mainly about four years of us living up there, me making a lot of mistakes, and in my arrogance and pride, thinking that I could do a lot of things in my own power apart from Christ. But there were also some, some very good things um, that God taught me. And uh, as I was reading this passage this past week, um, one of the people that just kept coming to mind was this guy named Sheldon. <laughs> um, I've shared about him before, but he just a, just a horrific life. Um, was born as the result of a rape. Um, never loved, really, by anybody. Drug addict. Uh, would come to our door quite regularly at three in the morning. Uh, <laughs> and, and many times he'd be high and he'd be, he'd be screaming, Eric! Eric! At my front door. And that's actually a very good impersonation, by the way. So I know none of you know that because you've never heard him. But but my, my point just being is I, it's in those contexts that the Lord wants to bring his word to bear. And I, I tell you, in those moments, like we're trying to reach those that are broken and enslaved by sin. You think Sheldon gives one rip about my nice little alliterated three points for my sermon? It means nothing to him. What he, he, what he does need in that moment is the word of God. He does need Jesus um, and I guess I just say all that because, my friends, don't, don't let there be a disconnect be, between what you're learning in the Word here on a Sunday morning, and yes, let me go back and on a YouTube video, on a podcast, all that's good, but remember why it's given to you. It, it's not given just to puff up our minds. It's to transform our lives and that it would come, the word comes to us, that it might come through us to a people that desperately need the Jesus that it's, that it's all about. One other example of this with just in the disciples' own lives in Matthew chapter 14, uh, another very well-known story, all the gospel writers record it, but the feeding of the 5,000. And Matthew is one of the places where it says that um, there was a great crowd again. Again, they would have been very overwhelmed. I think they were also exhausted by this time, meaning the disciples. Matthew 14, verse 14, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. And here's what they say, Send the crowds away, 
that they may go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But listen to what Jesus says. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. And then listen carefully. He says, you give them something to eat. You. Now, if you're reading carefully, you might go, well, wait, is that a typo? Don't you mean I will give them something to eat? I mean, isn't that what Jesus meant? She's like, I'll feed them. No, no, he says, you. You give them something to eat. And see, this is, this is the process of discipleship and why being surrounded by the brokenness of the world is one of the characteristics of Christ's classroom is because we've got to remember who it's for. And then you see this beautiful picture here of kind of the way ministry works is that they go and they find a few loaves and some fishes and he says, bring them to me. Bring me the little bit that you got. Bring it to me. That's what we do. And it says, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And then it says this, then he broke the loaves, Jesus. Jesus broke the loaves. He broke the bread, but he gave it to the disciples and the disciples took it to the crowds. You see, this is how ministry works. We come to Jesus, the supernatural work takes place in his hands, folks. It's not us. All the supernatural work, the life change, it takes place in his hands. Apart from his hands doing the supernatural work, we have nothing to give anybody. But it takes place in his hands, but he's not the one passing it out. He gives it to the disciples. The disciples give it to the crowds. The church is for making disciples. Disciples are for blessing the world. That's why, that's why we exist. Um, there's a lost and broken world that needs what Jesus is doing in our lives and what he's teaching us. The third characteristic of Christ's classroom is this, is not only will he lead us to the brokenness of the world, but when we're in Christ's classroom, we will find ourselves surrounded and very aware, very, very, very aware of the brokenness of our own lives. The brokenness of our own lives. And the reason he surrounds us with the brokenness of our own lives, the reason why this is conducive to making disciples, it's conducive to a good learning environment, is because it helps us to personally apply his word. Now, this is the whole point of the Beatitudes here. Again, originally, no chapter and verse divisions. Matthew's telling a story, so get the flow here. Come follow me. First place he goes, great crowds. He's healing them. Crowds are coming, and now he sits and he teaches them. He went up on a mountain. He sat down. His disciples came to him. He's speaking to the disciples, but the crowds are listening in. And again, the disciples were more than just the 12, but it's kind of a mixed bag at this point. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He opens his mouth and he teaches them. And what all these things are about, <laughs> pretty much, are the brokenness of our own lives. And I just, I'm not going to do much here other than just kind of read them slowly. And I'll comment on them briefly and explain them. And hopefully you'll see why I'm trying to make the point that one of the things that marks Christ's classroom will be the brokenness of your own life. He starts off and he says, blessed. And the word, and the word blessed is here, it's the idea of the peace and joy that come from knowing that God favors you. The peace and joy that come 
from knowing that God favors you. But listen to these things, because on the surface, they do not make any sense. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, when we're poor financially, it means that we don't have the resource to buy what we'd like to buy, right? We don't have it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm broke, man. Can, I, can, I, can anybody get me? Um, we're broke. He's saying you're, you're blessed. There's a sense of peace and joy that come from God when you understand that spiritually, you're bankrupt. You have nothing. Now, the implication is here is this is exactly where Jesus is going to lead you. Because he wants you to live with a sense of peace and joy that God favors you. But how's he going to get you there? By getting you to realize that you are spiritually bankrupt. You're broke. You don't have anything. The second one, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does that imply? It implies that you're going to be sad. Situations are going to come into your life that are heartbreaking. You are going to experience death, loss, difficulty, pain, sickness, all the things that you saw in the world, you will experience some of them yourself. Why? Because in your mourning, you will be comforted by God. The third one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea of meekness here is power, but under control. It kind of goes along with gentleness. And the implication here is that you're going to have to learn how to surrender control. Is that the idea behind meekness? Meekness is power under control. You're, you're going to be in situations where you want to assert yourself, but here's what Jesus is going to teach you to do. He's going to teach you instead to surrender. We don't like that, naturally. The next one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What, what's the implication? The implication that of, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is that you're going to go through seasons where you feel starved for righteousness. Where you wrestle so deeply with the darkness and your own sinfulness that it's going to feel like starvation. And Jesus says when you come through the other side of that, Blessed are those who truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they can't find it in and of themselves. Do you see how he's confronting us with our own brokenness? Are you following me? He's not done. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What does this imply? It implies that you're going to be in situations where people will have wronged you. They will have taken advantage of you. They will have done things to you that are truly hurtful. And you know what you're going to have to do? Show mercy. It's not something that comes naturally. It's something that is learned. 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 Disciples are learners. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, just if you got any theology at all, if you, get, if you got any good biblical theology at all, if you've been coming to Mercy Hill for any time at all, then you should know this. No one is born with a pure heart. 
right? Are you with me? Somebody say amen. All right. So how do you get a pure heart? You got to wrestle through the fact that you don't have one and that it only comes from God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What does this imply? You're going to be in the midst of some war, some battle, some interpersonal conflict. You're going to be in the midst of some family relationships that are tense. And in that place, that mark of Christ's classroom, he's going to teach you how to be a peacemaker. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What does this imply? It, it, It implies that when you're doing the right thing, People aren't always going to come along and pat you on the back and go, good job, Anthony. Way to be like Jesus, buddy. Instead, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to tell you that what you're doing is dumb. Doesn't make any sense. Jesus is trying to teach us his ways. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It implies that following Jesus... Following Jesus is going to cost you. Amen? It's going to cost you. None of these things come naturally. They are all learned. And here's again what I want you to see. Again, not just little compartments of your life. Is that if you are experiencing any of those things in your life, here's the reason why, dear friend, this is good news. And ultimately, just like Jesus said, you are blessed. You know why? Because you are his disciple. And discipleship isn't just one thing, it's everything. And if you've trusted in him, then he is discipling you. He is discipling you. The question is, are you following? Do you hear him? Are you obeying within immediacy to this? Again, I know there's a lot of application here, but let me just press it a little bit, and I'm almost done. He is discipling you, husbands. Husbands, he is discipling you through the wife that he has given you. And in the fact that maybe she doesn't always agree with you. And I see the wives going, yes, I told you. (laughs) Well, hold on, sister. Because he is discipling you through the husband that he's given you. Yeah, but he doesn't always do things right, and I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, and I think think he's wrong. He is discipling you through the husband that he's given you. It's a two-way street. Parents, he is discipling you through the kids that he's given you. Even the strong-willed ones especially the strong-willed ones. I think I got four strong-willed ones, if I'm honest, but um, kids, he is absolutely positively discipling you through the parents that he's given you. Without any question, God is sovereign over the family that you were born into and are in. Are you bucking against that? Or are you following with immediacy? He is discipling you 
through the job he's given you and not just the job he's given you with the people that are at the job that he's given you. He is discipling you. He's discipling you with the neighbors that are around you. He is discipling you with the circumstances, the trials, the tribulation, and the suffering that surrounds you. He is discipling you. Amen? We never leave his classroom. No recess, no summer break. And this is really good of him, isn't it? How kind is our Jesus that he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He never will. He will never leave you or forsake you. Worship team, you can come up and we're going to close. And of course, we're going to take communion this morning. And uh, it's a good morning for that. It's always a good morning for that. It's always a good time for that, but. Um, especially as we start off this new year and just thinking about following Jesus and hopefully recommitting to following him, not just with sluggishness and slothfulness, um, but with zeal and with a sense of immediacy. And the question just kind of the one guiding question that I want to ask as we close in, in light of all that we've talked about this morning. Is there any chance that you have been resisting or dismissing the very things that make for a profitable learning environment? Is there any chance that you are resisting Christ's call to step into the unfamiliar? Is there any chance that you're resisting his call to surround yourself and to not, or maybe just to not leave the brokenness of the world? Is there any chance that you're resisting his call to want to expose the brokenness of your own life? He'll lead us right into these things. This is what, this is what his classroom looks like. And if you, if you would now, just bow your heads and close your eyes. Before we come here and take communion in just a second. I just want to create just a little bit of space here as we close because I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is real. Jesus is not just an idea. His spirit is not just an idea. He's seated on the throne right now in heaven. He has poured out his spirit. If you've trusted in him, you are the father's child. And he sees every, every, every detail of your life down to the number of hairs on your head and every thought that you think, the ones that you speak out loud and the ones that you keep inside. He knows you. And in everything, he's discipling you. And the thing I just want to remind us of this morning, as we close, as you think about your life, and hopefully examine it in light of the desire to want to be obedient, to follow him, 
is that this same Jesus who has allowed maybe some difficult things in your life, maybe some things that are uncomfortable, this is the same Jesus who died for you. Same Jesus who went to the cross. And so, brother, sister, there is no reason not to trust him. No one has ever done for us what Jesus has done. So as you come this morning, I pray that as you come and you take the bread, which represents his broken body, and you drink of the cup, which represents his shed blood, that as you take that, that you would also lay aside any mistrust you may have of what he's doing in your life. That, see, that's where the repentance has to happen. We need to repent of not trusting him or thinking that his classroom isn't set up the way that we'd like it to be and things would be better if he'd just do this or whatever. No, no, no. He knows exactly what he's doing. So let's do that as we come this morning. Father, thank you for today. Lord, as we, uh, as we come now, again, as this act of worship that is unique to your people, but you've called us to do it, I pray that, Lord, as we take up you and your sacrifice, that we would lay down our unbelief. Thank you so much for the great privilege of being called to follow you. Lord, I think back uh, over 20 years ago where the gospel landed in my heart with power. And I have, I have, oh, I have been disobedient way more times than I could ever count and yet you do not let me go. I just personally this morning I truly, truly, truly thank you for that. Help each one of us to trust you because I know that you have both difficulty but also unbelievable goodness in store for us in this new year and we don't want to miss out on any of it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. If you're helping